Let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer and get into our Sunday school lesson. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for every single person who is here this morning to come out and to listen to and to read and to study your word. I'm uh, ever so thankful and ever so grateful uh, for that, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless them with an extra special blessing. May your Holy Spirit open up their hearts and open up their minds so that they can uh, understand and know what your word is trying to say to them and dig deep into the narrative of the scripture, that it's just beyond the black and white surface letters, but we can understand the language and the cultures and and and, and what and the traditions and what uh, the Christian as well as uh, rabbinic scholars have said regarding this passage, Lord. So Holy Spirit, be our guide, be our teacher, today as we read and study your word and uh, help us to obtain what you want us to know and that we would just kind of get all that we can out of the passage. And I thank you for this privilege and for this opportunity to be able to uh, speak to you, uh, to speak to these people this morning and, and to lift up my voice and pray to you, Father. Lord, we just give you thanks and we give you praise. I pray that you would just help me as I speak to be clear and concise that the words that come out of my mouth will be your words and not my own. And uh, Father, we love you and praise you and ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, so this is our third Sunday in Genesis chapter 37, and we just got finished reviewing Joseph's dreams and the dream, the prophetic dreams that Joseph had, uh, the position that Joseph held in his family and in his father's eyes, the way that Joseph was dressed in the coat of many colors, and the way he was his father's favorite, and the way that Reuben fell from grace by sleeping with Bilhah, and where Simeon and Levi uh, fell from grace by destroying the men of Shechem. He decided to, it was uh, Jacob's intention to have Joseph be the next patriarch and lead the family, and he showed it off. Well, his other brothers were very... Uh, distraught at this and disagreed with this because they knew daddy was playing favorites. And on top of this, Joseph was a cocky 17-year-old kid anyway. And, uh, you know, cockiness doesn't go well in no matter what situation you're in. Confidence is one thing, cockiness is another. And so we see that his brothers were, were growing in animosity. And uh, not only this, he had two prophetic dreams that he was going to be the ruler of the family and that the brothers would bow down. Not only the brothers, but his parents would bow down. And so uh, the brothers is like, hey, man, this, this, this kid's nuts. He's gone way too far. Uh, so now we are at the point where, um, let's see here, verse. All right, so we're at the point where uh, Jacob asked his son Joseph to go and check on his brothers who were tending sheep. Hadn't heard from him in days, was a little bit worried about him. So he sent Joseph to see how they were faring and how they were doing. And according to rabbinic tradition, the brothers didn't like this because Joseph was not only cocky, he was a tattletale. And uh, so his brothers didn't take too kindly to that. So now we are in uh, chapter 37, verse uh, 15. And uh, we're at the point where Joseph is looking for his brothers, where they're tending sheep. So let's get right on into the text. So we're going to read 15 through 17 and then dig right in. So a man found him there wandering in the field. So this man found Joseph wandering in the field aimlessly, kind of looking around. A man found him there wandering in the field and asked him, Who are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph said. Can you tell me where they're pasturing their flock? Uh, well, they moved on from here, the man said, and, and I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. 
So Joseph set out after his brothers and found them in Dothan. So who is this man? Total stranger, right? And what would a man be doing in the middle of a field anyway? The text says that he didn't have any sheep or any flocks or any animals. It's just he saw a man there. What an odd place to find a human being in the middle of nowhere. So maybe we can understand this as, man, this might be something mysterious. This might be something a little spiritual going on. It says, a man found him there wandering in the field and asked him, who are you looking for? So according to the text, Joseph is looking around and out of nowhere, almost by surprise, a man finds Joseph and says, hey, buddy, what are you looking for? So even Joseph didn't know this guy was there until he approached him. Now, in scriptural narrative all throughout, angels are seen as men. Most of the time when, when somebody in the scripture encounters an angel, most of the time they don't even know they're an angel at first because it says they, were, they, they look as a man. Now, accord, uh, uh, just to kind of dispel some, some uh, mythos in religion, Angels do not have wings because angels, huh? <laughs> angels in the Hebrew is malachim, and it means angels, but it also means messengers. So this is actually a job title. So the angel's job is to be a messenger, and we see that all the time. Michael uh, or Gabriel was given a message to, to Elizabeth and was given a message to, um, uh, to Mary. And uh, so we see angels delivering messages all the time. When the two angels went to Sodom and Gomorrah to, to fetch Lot and his family, they didn't have wings. They appeared as men. But you're saying, well, what about all these accounts of, of these scriptures and, you know, where it's talking about angels that have wings? Well, they are a different class of heavenly being. You have the seraphim and you have the cherubim, and they are considered the throne guardians of God. Now, that seems a little odd because you would say, well, well, if God's God, why does he need guarding? No, 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 no. The guardians are not for him. The guardians are to guard us, to protect us from the presence of God. Because we, in God's presence, in our sinful, raw form, and seeing the unadulterated, raw presence of God, we'd be annihilated. The scripture says that no man sees God and live. So when God makes his appearance unto man, he, there's always some sort of filter, some sort of smokescreen, so they're not seeing the raw, manifest presence of God. So uh, could this, this man, could, could it be Gabriel? There's a lot of rabbis who say that this man was Gabriel. Others say that it's the angel of the Lord. I tend to believe it was the angel of the Lord. Now, remember also Jacob, when he wrestled, when you read that passage, it says he wrestled with a man. But later on in the passage, Jacob um, gets to the point where he's like, oh, well, this is more than just some ordinary human being. This is a supernatural being, and it's the angel of the Lord. So at first he thought it was a man. So now the book of Jasher is an extra biblical text that was, uh, that was available to uh, the first century believers. Now I have a book called The Suffer, and it's the entire Bible plus the Apocrypha plus the extra biblical books that were available to the first century church. 
And they read from these, not saying that they believe they were scripture, but they read from them for educational purposes, for clarification or insight on the canonical scriptures. Jasher was just one of them. So in Jasher chapter 41, it says that this man was actually the angel of the Lord. Now this angel of the Lord is a special angel because he has no name. He is the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. Now, when you run into the angel of the Lord, you are encountering the pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ. That's who the angel of the Lord, because this angel of the Lord in Hebrew means that he is the angel of God's presence. He is, he is God's presence manifest. He is God's ambassador and God's direct image being manifest to give word into the people or what have you. So this angel of the Lord is always connected to what uh, um, theologians call a Christophany. That's just a fancy way of saying Jesus appearing before he was born, appearing in pre-incarnate form. Who do you think walked with Adam and Eve in the garden? You know, God put himself in the presence of Yeshua and walked in human form because God walked with them in the cool of the day. You know, so, and also it was Jesus who spoke everything into creation. We find that out in John chapter one. Now in Genesis one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and it says he, he spoke, you know, be light made and all this kind of stuff. And in John one, it clarifies who's doing the speaking. So it's actually Jesus who is actually speaking and he is the one who created everything. And in John chapter 17, you find that Jesus, that God the Father and God the Son, they're one, they're one, they're one in unity. And in John chapter 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and that's another name for Jesus. In the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, and without him there was not anything made that was made. So it's the Word of God, uh, Jesus Christ, who is the Creator. So I think it's safe to say, according to extra-biblical text and the way the, the, the canonical text reads, it says, a man found him wandering in the field. I believe this was the angel of the Lord. I do believe the account of Jasher, that it wasn't Gabriel. Because Gabriel, he really didn't have much of a message. You know, he just says, oh, they're over there in Dothan. I heard them say, not much of a message. I think it was the angel of the Lord. So in verse 16, it says, uh, here's Joseph speaking. He says, I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph said. Can you tell me where they are pasturing their flocks? So here, Joseph is asking a question. If it was Gabriel, Gabriel would have spoken up and say, hey, I got a message for you. Your brothers are over here. But I don't think it was Gabriel because he didn't have a message. He just had a reply, whoever this man was. So that's another indication that makes me believe it was the angel of the Lord. It was Jesus in pre-incarnate form. So uh, the angel of the Lord was sent to keep Joseph on his prophetic uh, destined path. You know, Joseph, if he was there looking, he may have gotten tired and would have said, Gee, I can't find them anywhere. And go back to jo uh, Jacob and say, sorry, Dad, I looked, but I can't find them anywhere. Don't know where they are. So this angel of the Lord or this man was sent at that particular time to um, guide Joseph to where the brothers were. Little did Joseph know that this would eventually cause him to wind up in Egypt. So this man or this angel of the Lord was sent to keep Joseph on his prophetically destined path, which was Egypt. If he failed to locate his brothers, he may have had return home, as I said. So verse 17 says, they moved on from here, the man said. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. 
So Joseph set out after his brothers and found them at Dothan. It's said by the extra biblical text that the brothers went to Dothan because they got wind that the allies of Shechem wanted revenge and was planning an attack. So before they went to Dothan, where were they pasturing the flocks? In Shechem. What's so significant about Shechem? Well, if you'll remember in a few chapters back that Shechem was a, a mighty city and it was a mighty tribe of people. They took uh, uh, um, Jacob's daughter Dinah, kidnapped her, and the prince of that people kidnapped her and raped her. And then he wanted to end up marrying her just so she could be another concubine. Well, the brother said, you're not going to treat our sister like a whore. You guys are done. So they strapped on their swords, Simeon and Levi, and went through the entire city and slaughtered everybody, just decimated the Shechemites. Now, how were they able to accomplish that? By a trick, by a ruse. They said, sure, you can marry our daughter, but on one condition, all of your men must be circumcised. Well, that's a small price to pay, a little ounce of flesh rather than thousands of dollars or jewels or flocks and herds. We get to keep all our stuff and just lose a little bit of foreskin, no problem. Three days later, they were in agony because that's the most painful part of the healing process from a circumcision. And they were at their weakest point, and that's when Simeon and Levi went in and slaughtered the people. Well, they're at the Shechemites, they had allies, and their allies didn't take too kindly to that. So when they were shepherding their flocks in, in, in Shechem, it was as if saying, hey, this place is ours now. We own it. We turned your city into a grazing land for sheep. How about that? So it's almost as if they were daring others. Come, see, you know, try us, try us. Well, they got wind that the allies didn't take too kindly to them pasturing their flocks in Shechem. And they're like, hey, we're just, we're just a handful of brothers here. I mean, we, 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 we got rid of the Shechemites, but we had the advantage because they were weak. So maybe we should shepherd our flocks somewhere else. So I think we made our point, boys. So they moved on to Dothan where it was safer. All right, so verse 18. They, the brothers, saw him in the distance, and before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. Can anybody say premeditated murder? That's what this is, is premeditated murder. They saw him at a distance, and before they reached him, they plotted to kill him. They hated Joseph that much. They were threatened by Joseph's influence, power, and authority that was given to him by their father, Jacob, that they wanted to kill him. They knew the prophetic dreams that they were one day going to bow down to him. And they're like, we're going to put a stop to this. There's no way we're going to bow down to this cocky, arrogant, snotty-nosed kid here. Little pretty boy, daddy's favorite. They saw him at a distance, and before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, oh, look, here comes the dream expert. So now, come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what happens to his dreams. All right. So we, we see the plot is, is the, the, the plan is already hatched. They see him. They're like, we got a plan. We're going to kill him. We're going to throw him in a pit. And we'll just say a wild animal ate him. There's nobody that's going to contradict us. Because it was the brothers that were all in on this, and they made a pact that this is what they were going to do, and they weren't going to reveal what they had done on the pains of death. But, however, uh, it says in verse 21, 
When Reuben heard this, now Reuben is the firstborn, and he lost his firstborn position, meaning he was not going to be patriarch of the family, and he wasn't going to get the inheritance of most of the stuff. And the reason this happened is because he slept with his father's concubine, which now his father's concubine, after the death of Leah, had become his wife. When Reuben heard this, he tried to save him from them. He said, oh, let's not, let's not take his life. Reuben also said to them, don't shed blood. You know, throw him into this pit in the wilderness, but, but don't lay hands on him. Because he intended to rescue him from them and return him to his father. Now, does this mean that Reuben had a soft spot in his heart for Joseph? No. He hated him just as much as the other brothers did. He had an ulterior motive in mind. His intentions were to go back and rescue Joseph, restore him to his father, in hopes that he can get back into daddy's good graces. Because after all, daddy stripped him of his power of being the next patriarch, of being firstborn, and all this kind of stuff. So that was his intention, not necessarily that he loved Joseph, because even though he lost his position as firstborn, it's almost as if he still had the responsibility of a firstborn that whatever happened on Reuben's watch would reflect badly on him. Because he's the eldest and the oldest, whatever the brothers do would reflect on him. And he didn't want to be considered the ringleader of this. He didn't want to take the blame for what they were going to do. All right, I'm, I'm going to read my notes here. I probably already said this, but Reuben's still trying to make up for sleeping with Bilhah and trying to get back in daddy's good graces. Uh, though, they, though stripped of the firstborn, Reuben still felt responsible responsibility that whatever happened on his watch would reflect on him and that he would bear the brunt of the responsibility. So if something went wrong, it's not necessarily the other brothers would be punished as bad as Reuben would have been. All right, so verse 23. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off Joseph's robe. Now remember, this robe symbolized that, his, that the intention was he was going to be the next leader. He was going to be the patriarch. Jacob, their father, put this coat on him, and it was a robe and a coat worn by high priests, worn by uh, kings and tribal leaders. And it was multicolored to kind of show off his power and his authority. So it's like uh, the brother stripped off Joseph's robe, the robe of many colors that he had on. So, you know, this is kind of like their way of ripping off stripes in the military. So let's say that you had a sergeant who behaved badly or broke the rules. And the commanding officer comes to this sergeant, goes to his sleeve and <laughs> rips off his stripes. You're demoted. You're no longer a sergeant. We're going to put you back to buck private. That's kind of like what they were doing with Joseph by stripping off his coat, saying, you know what? You think you have authority over us, but you're delusional. You don't. You're not going to be the leader over us. We're not going to bow down to you, regardless of what stupid, wacky dreams you may have had. This was also a form of humiliation because in humiliation, it's like being in gym class and you get pantsed. You know what that is, right? You know, you're in gym class and you're wearing shorts or sweatpants and somebody comes up behind you and pulls down your pants in front of everybody and there you are in your underwear. It's humiliating. And the code of modesty back then was, was, was um, more, uh, 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 more high than it is now. So being stripped was a very, a very embarrassing thing. Even though you had a loincloth on, you were still considered naked. 
So that's how bad it was. So it was a demotion and it was a form of humiliation. And this is exactly what happened to Jesus, to Yeshua. Because if you remember, we were talking about the parallels between Joseph and Jesus. It says in Matthew 22, 28, this is during, right when they're about ready to crucify him. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. So they stripped him of his clothes. They gambled over his clothes. And they stripped him to humiliate him because they were going to scourge him and then send him to the cross. And that this robe was a mockery. Where Joseph's coat was the symbol of authority, this scarlet robe that was put on Jesus was a symbol of authority because he claimed to be the king of the Jews, but they didn't believe it. So it was done in mockery. You know, they were making fun of him, kind of like, kind of like uh, uh, um, the hunchback of Notre Dame when they made him king during the festival. Well, they were just making fun of him. He wasn't really the king. And so that's what the Roman soldiers were doing to Jesus. So we see the parallel there. So in verse 24, it says, Then they took him and threw him in the pit, and the pit was empty and without water. So this was probably once used as a well. And uh, um, we can see that, you know, uh, in the in the near future that there's going to be a famine and so this might have been the beginning of a drought that was taking place but this pit which was most likely some form of a well was dry and they cast him in the pit now jasher the book of jasher says that the dry well was infested with snakes and scorpions and that is why joseph cried out so if you fell in a pit and there were snakes and scorpions all around you coming you know up from the ground and out from the walls of the well i'm sure you'd be crying out too save me what are you doing rescue me so this is what it says in jasher chapter 42 verse 21 that there were snakes and scorpions in the pit and joseph cried out and we're going to see in the text that here joseph cries out but they ignore his cries so there's also a legend that says that joseph was in the pit for three days now this is a legend it's not canon it's not scripture but even this legend parallels with jesus because it says he was in the pit for three days who else do we know that was in a type of pit for three days jesus he was in the tomb he was in a pit so to speak for three days and so we see you know uh and and that's the prophetic thing in in matthew 20 uh 12 40 uh we're talking about that that three days and three nights in in the heart of the earth all right so moving on here hopefully we can finish chapter 37 today so moving on to verse 25 they the brothers that remained sat down to eat a meal and when they looked up there was a caravan of ishmaelites coming from gilead their camels were carrying aromatic gum balsam and resin going down to egypt judah said to his brothers what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood come on let's sell him to the ishmaelites and lay not a hand on him, for he is our brother, after all, our own flesh. And the brothers agreed. When the Midianite traders passed by... Wait a second. Something doesn't sound right here. They're talking about Ishmaelites here at the beginning, and now they're talking about Midianites. So who is it? Who's taking Joseph? What's going on here? So let me read 28, and then we'll get into that and answer that question. When the Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. Who else do we know that was sold for 30 pieces of silver? Jesus, Judas, 
which Judas is the Greek form of Judah. They're the same name. So Judah has this idea, let's not kill him, let's make a profit off of him, let's sell our brother. And then you have Judas in the New Testament who said, look, this, this Jesus guy, he's not the Messiah I thought he was. He's not going to be this political insurrectionist that, that I thought he was going to be. So I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to betray him. Now, he didn't, he didn't think that they were going to kill him. Judas genuinely thought that they were just going to give him a hard time and just maybe incarcerate him and stuff. He, did, he had no idea that they planned on killing him. And that's when he, you know, when he understood the plan that it was a plot to kill Jesus, not just to arrest him, put him in his place, when Judas was remorseful and went out and hung himself. So we see that parallel again between uh, Joseph and Jesus. All right, so here, here's the thing about, you know, in the first part, we, we see it's the Ishmaelites, and then all of a sudden it's the Midianites. And so there's some confusion, and then there's people who say, see, you can't trust the Bible. It's full of contradictions. One minute they're selling them to the Ishmaelites, next minute they're selling them to the Midianites, and the Midianites sell them back to the Ishmaelites. doesn't make sense. What's going on? If you read the text carefully, you will notice that it seems a bit disjointed and even contradictory. Who did Joseph get sold to anyway? Ishmaelites or Midianites? And in turn, which one sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt? Okay, first of all, according to Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 16, and uh, chapter 25, verse 12, Ishmael is the son of Abraham and Hagar. Midian is the son of Abraham and Keturah, according to Genesis 25, 1 and 2. Now, some rabbis believe that after Sarah died, Abraham reunited with Hagar, and she received a new name as a result. Further implying, she, um, she converted to, to the belief of the God of Abraham. So, Hagar was an Egyptian. And uh, they were sent off because of the rivalry between Isaac and Ishmael. Um, it was apparent that Ishmael was jealous and may have wanted to harm Isaac. So Hagar and Ishmael were sent off into the wilderness. And then after Sarah died and Isaac was grown up and moved away, um, Abraham, according to some, took back Hagar as a wife. And she converted because of her experience with God in the wilderness, providing a well of water for them, that she converted to the same God that Abraham worshipped. And converts traditionally change their name. We see this in foreign countries all the time, that you'll have a name that you were born with and you'll have what's called a Christian name. And this is done also in Judaism. You know, you're born, you know, I was born Chris Shoemaker, but my Hebrew name is Yehuda ben Shomer. So uh, if indeed uh, Hagar and Keturah are the same thing, then Ishmaelites and Midianites are brothers, full brothers, and at the very least half-brothers. Uh, so according to Jasher chapter 42, the sons of Israel saw the Ishmaelites first far off on the horizon, but due to a hilly terrain, it hid the Midianites in the valley which means the Midianites were ahead of the Ishmaelites. Now, does that make sense? So let's say you have a rolling hills, and you can only see from one hill to the next. And off in the horizon on this one hill, you see the Ishmaelites. But little did they know that the Midianites were ahead of them in the valley, and the valley was hiding them. So it was actually the Midianites were ahead of the Ishmaelites. So according to Jasher 42, the sons of Israel... Um, saw the Ishmaelites first afar on the horizon, but due to a hilly terrain, it hid the Midianites in the valley, 
which means the Midianites were ahead of the Ishmaelites. Or, here's another way to think about it, the Midianites were coming from the opposite direction that the sons of Israel were looking. They were looking only in one direction and saw the Ishmaelites, and lo and behold, in the opposite direction, coming closer and faster, were the Midianites, and they approached the sons of Israel before the uh, Ishmaelites got there. That is another interpretation for that. So Genesis 39, verse 1, it says, Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt, an Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. So we see that the Midianites get hold of Joseph first. Somehow there's a change of hands and Joseph goes from the Midianites to the Ishmaelites and it's ultimately the Ishmaelites that sell uh, Joseph into Egypt. Now, this is according to the book of Jasher. This is according to Jewish tradition and legend. The Midianites bought Joseph first, but the Midianites thought that there was something fishy. And the reason they thought something was fishy is because he didn't look like a slave boy. Remember I told you that Joseph was cocky and arrogant, that he was actually a pretty boy? He primped, you know, he, he cared about his looks, he cared about his hair. He spoke, he spoke proper Hebrew or proper whatever language they were speaking. He, he didn't have any scars on his body, which would say that he was punished. He wasn't emaciated. He was a strong, strapping young lad. So when the Midianites got him, they thought, man, this is a great deal here. And then they was like, wait a second. You know, he doesn't look, act, smell, walk like a slave. He's too, he's too clean. He's too, he's too sophisticated. He's too civilized. He's too proper. Man, what, what if he was kidnapped? Then we're going to be guilty of kidnapping. Let's get this guy off our hands as soon as possible. So in turn, the Midianites sold them to the Ishmaelites, who didn't have a problem. Um, all right, so let's go to verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. So all this took place of selling Joseph into slavery while, while, while uh, Reuben was somewhere else. Now, we don't, the scripture doesn't say maybe he, was, maybe he was conducting business elsewhere. Maybe he had to run an errand. Maybe he was taking care of a separate flock somewhere. Or who knows? But it says when Reuben returned, to the pit, he saw that Joseph was not there, and he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy is gone. What am I going to do? Reuben felt like he was going to be responsible. Whatever wrath or punishment Jacob was going to hand out or dole out, it was going to hit Reuben because even though he lost his position as firstborn, he was still the eldest and still had responsibility over the rest of the brothers. And, and this plan of his to get back into daddy's good graces was totally ruined. Totally ruined. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy is gone. What am I going to do? Verse 31. So they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a male goat, and dipped the robe in his blood, in its blood. They sent the robe of many colors to their father and said, uh, we found this. Examine it. Is it your son's or not? So according to extra biblical text, it was at this point the brothers banded together and say, look, what's done is done. We can't change it. 
So we need to make a pact that we're going to remain silent about this. We're not going to tell dad. We're not going to tell anybody. And if you do, we're going to kill you. So the brother said, all right, we're, we're in this together. So, okay, now how do we solve this problem to explain where Joseph has gone? And they concoct this plan to take the robe of many colors, which they despised because it symbolized Joseph's authority over them. Jacob's intention to make him patriarch and leader. It symbolized the cockiness and arrogance of Joseph. And they hated him, so they shredded the robe and they slaughtered a goat from the flock and, and, and dipped it into the blood to make it look like he had been eaten and ravaged by a wild animal. All right. So they made a pact and then uh, to cover up Joseph being sold into sla slavery and wouldn't even reveal what actually happened. Um, you know, it's as if they were like, okay, um, we don't like tattletales. That's why we got rid of Joseph. So if any of you guys tattletale, you're in for it. All right, so verse 32 and 33. They sent the robe of many colors to their father and said, we found this. Examine it. Is it your sons or not? Verse 33, the father recognized it. it. It is my son's robe, he said. A vicious animal has devoured him. Oh, Joseph has been torn to pieces. This is circumstantial evidence. Can't be proven. They didn't have DNA back then. They couldn't tell if that blood was human or animal. All you had was a shredded robe. Now, he may have known for sure there might have been some distinction to that robe, that, that he knew for sure it was his son's robe, but yet how could he substantiate it was torn by a wild animal? They didn't have forensics back then. You know, when you, when you have a knife mark, it looks different than a tear. And a tear looks different than a knife mark, and a claw mark looks different than both. So it was only circumstantial evidence that Jacob had to go on. It's like if you have two guys that walk into a building and one of them comes out holding a knife with blood on his shirt. Most people are going to say, well, that guy killed the other guy. Do you have any proof? Is there any witnesses? How do you know? Maybe somebody climbed in through a window. Maybe somebody was hiding in the basement. Maybe there was somebody already in that building intended on killing whoever came in there, and the guy that came out with a bloody shirt and the knife was actually defending them both, and he's the only one who came out and survived. See, you can't prove it. So there was no proof here, but the circumstantial evidence seemed pretty obvious. What other conclusion could you come to? It was unthinkable for Jacob, or for Jacob to think that his sons would perpetuate some kind of ruse on him. I mean, he probably knew that they hated Joseph, but not to the extent that they would kill him. Not to the extent that they would sell him into slavery. So his only logical conclusion was that it, he, Joseph was, was eaten by a wild animal. Now, according to uh, legends, uh, a Jewish legend, according to what is called the Midrash, which is the Jewish commentary and extra-biblical texts of the canonical text, it was blamed on a wolf. Joseph's death was blamed on a wolf. So the, the nearest wolf in the area got the blame, and it was captured, and it was about ready to be slaughtered so they could examine to see if there was any contents in the wolf's stomach. And Balaam's donkey happened. You know what I mean by that? You know how Balaam's donkey talked? Well, according to the extra-biblical text and according to legend, 
that this wolf, God gave this wolf the ability to speak. And this wolf, which was a female wolf, says, yes, I have to provide for my cubs, but there's no way that I'm going to kill a human being in order to sustain the life of my cubs. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. And so the wolf, professing its innocence, was let go. Now again, take it with a grain of salt because it's not in the biblical text. It's just extra biblical, so I'm throwing it out there because I thought it'd be interesting for you. So um, this, according to the book of Jasher, it says when it was discovered or believed that Joseph had perished, was eaten by some wild animal, Bilhah and Dinah died that day of grief. Now Bilhah was the adopted mother of Joseph. Because remember, Rachel died. She died after giving birth to Benjamin. So the only kids that Rachel had was, was Joseph and Benjamin. They were full brothers. And once um, uh, Rachel and Leah died, the concubines were taken on as full-fledged wives. And Bilhah had the responsibility of raising Benjamin and, and Joseph. So he, she was like a second mother to Joseph. And Dinah, of course, was the sister who was raped, and because she was raped, she was damaged goods, and because she was damaged goods, nobody wanted to marry her because she wasn't a virgin. So she remained, uh, she, she didn't get married. She never had any children. She was like an old maid by this point. So it says that Bilhah and Dinah, which Dinah probably took some responsibility of babysitting and caregiving for Benjamin and Joseph, died that day of grief. So not only did Jacob have to deal with the death of Joseph, if these extra-biblical texts and legends are true, he had to deal with the, the death of his wife and the death of his daughter. Three deaths in one day. Now let's move on to verse 34. We're still in chapter 37, verse 34. Then, then Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth around his waist, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will go down to Sheol. Now, Sheol is a very mysterious Hebrew word. It's been translated many different things. It can mean hell. It can mean the grave, depending on the context. Most translations say the grave. In other words, it's, some, it's, it's basically the afterlife. No, he said, I will go down to Sheol to my son. I will go down to the grave to my son, to the underworld, to the afterlife to my son. Mourning. And his father wept for him. Now, again, back at verse 34, Jacob tore his clothes. That was a universal symbolic gesture in the Middle Eastern culture that when you rip your clothes, it, it, it is a physical way to show your inward emotion. You, you rip your clothes to show your pain, to show your grief. So it's, he tore his clothes, and he put on sackcloth. Sackcloth, sackcloth is, is, is kind of like burlap. It's kind of like an old potato sack. It's just this itchy, uh, very uncomfortable uh, piece of material. And so when you're in mourning, you, you, you show that visually by being uncomfortable all the time. And then another tradition was to put ashes on your head. Now, that seems kind of strange to us, but, you know, ashes symbolize the final form when our body decays. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. 
You know, God told Adam that you came from the earth and you're going to return to the earth. So it symbolizes what you're mourning about. You're mourning over a loss, over a death. And it says that um, they mourn many days. He mourned for his son many days. Now, I can't say this for sure, but I believe that he had this intense mourning. He mourned the rest of his life until he discovered Joseph was really alive. He was in some sort of state of mourning. But this intense state of mourning, the initial state of mourning, is called sitting Shiva in Judaism. Shiva is a seven-day period. You're basically mourning for a whole week. For a whole week, he probably didn't eat. For a whole week, he probably didn't bathe. For a whole week, he put ashes on his head. For a whole week, he was wearing tattered clothes, and he was wearing sackcloth, and he was grieving and mourning. And this is still traditional today in Judaism, not that they put ashes on their head and wear sackcloth, but they wear black clothes. They actually t tear the lapel of their jacket to keep that tradition. Some, of, some people fast, and a lot of times you just sit in silence because... What words can you say over some of a tragedy? Now, this tradition goes all the way back before the book of Genesis. Because Genesis was not the first book of the Bible that was written. Job was actually written before Genesis. Job lived before Moses lived. And so, uh, in the book of Job... Uh, chapter 2, verse 13, after Job lost all of his livestock, lost all of his children, lost all of his wealth, lost all of his health, it says that his friends came to mourn with them, and it says that they sat down together and mourned for seven days in silence. So we see this, this tradition is well, well established, and it still carries on today. It's called sitting Shiva. All right. Verse uh, 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. All right, so. Uh, now, you know, again, here we have an interchangeability of Midianites and Ishmaelites. Because here it's saying the Midianites sold Joseph into slavery. So maybe this is talking about indirectly they sold him to slavery because in verse 39, verse 1, uh, they, uh, it says it was the Ishmaelites. So you can interpret it several different ways, but there's really no contradiction here. And if the Midianites and the Ishmaelites both came from Hagar, a.k.a. Keturah, then you could use those names interchangeably because it was as if, it was as if Ishmael was the patriarch of all of the family that came from Hagar slash Keturah. So if that was the case, all his brothers would have been in submission to him, and they would have been called by his name because he was kind of like the tribe. So like, for instance, if you're talking about the children of Israel, if you're talking about the children of Israel, you're talking about Ephraim, Manasseh, Gad, Asher, Benjamin, all of the 12 sons of Jacob. But they're called Israel because Israel slash Jacob was the head He's the one who started the family, started the tribe. So we could look at it that way as well, that Ishmael was an umbrella term and Midianite was a more of, of a specific term. So we could also look at it in that way too. So uh, the Midianites had intentions of selling Joseph into Egypt and ended up doing so when they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites, as we read in chapter 39, verse 1. Um, okay. 
Let me see. All right, so let's let's continue on with verse 36. And meanwhile, the Midianites, and as we know, the Ishmaelites, sold Joseph into Egypt to Potiphar. Uh, Potiphar. Uh, the names in Egypt, just like the names in Hebrew, symbolized uh, some sort of allegiance to a god. Like if you have the name Elijah, Eliyahu, it means El, uh, El, which is the generic term for God in Hebrew. It's uh, God is Yahweh, Eliyahu, Eliyahu. God is Yahweh. My God is Yahweh. So Potiphar, um, it, 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 was, it was, had a connection to the Egyptian sun god. Now this Potiphar says that he was an officer of Pharaoh and a captain of the guards. So Pharaoh was basically like the bodyguard of Pharaoh. He's the guy who set it up. He was like the head of the secret service, if you want to put it in context of the United States and the president. You have the head of the Secret Service. He's the one who organizes all the guys who wear the black suits, the earpieces, the sunglasses, the ones who are trotting beside the, the, the convertible limo of JFK when the assassination happened. They were the ones that were supposed to protect him and guard his life, and they failed. So Pharaoh was captain of the guard. He was kind of like the head of the Secret Service that protected the Pharaoh, that, that supplied all the soldiers and all the protection and escorted him wherever he went. So he was a high-ranking officer and was probably very, very close to Pharaoh himself. Okay. So I'm going to read um, some verses kind of back-to-back, -back, and it might make a little bit more sense. So verse 28 of 37, it says, When the Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. And then verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards. And then 39.1, Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards, brought, bought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him there. So we see kind of a clear change of hands from the Midianites to the, Ishmael, or to the Ishmaelites. And it kind of plays out there. So it's a little bit confusing, but if you understand the way that tribes are structured and understand what the extra biblical text, there's no uh, contradictions. It makes a lot more sense. All right, so we finish chapter 37, and chapter 38 is going to be very interesting. We find that we're in a break of the narrative. Right here, we've been in the thick of the story of Joseph, and the spotlight is on Joseph, his dreams, his being sold into slavery, and his, the plot that his brothers had against him. And all of a sudden, it's like we go to a different scene in the movie. You know how you have a movie and you have a main character, but there's subplots and there's minor characters? Well, this is a break in the narrative, and we go to chapter 38, and we hear the story of Judah and Tamar, which is a very lurid story, if you will, um, you know, kind of makes you blush a little bit, a little bit shocking. Uh, but if you understand the culture and uh, the religious climate back then, uh, there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff that we get out of Genesis 38. So I'm really looking forward to, uh, to getting into that next week. So um, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for being able to finish chapter 37 of Genesis and uh, helping us to understand the text and to see and to show that, 
you know, other people who don't know what they're talking about, kind of armchair scholars will say, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. But if you understand the, 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 the culture and the names and how the names can be interchangeable, and you, under, you also uh, 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 look into the extra biblical texts and the rabbinical commentaries, it all comes together nicely and it all makes sense and there's no contradictions. And uh, Lord, we want to thank you for the inerrancy of your word, because that's one of the cornerstones of our faith. That's one of those non-negotiable things as a believer. So we thank you for that. So Lord, help us as we kind of ingest this. And I've given uh, myself as well as the people a lot to think about this week. So as we review this, this chapter 37 on our own time, help us to remember the things that we were taught and the things that we learned. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us even more insight into your word. And so, Father, we love you, and we praise you, and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen.